Hello, and welcome to EPR with your favorite environmental nerds, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, we give our shout outs. Laura and I talk about agricultural best practices. We interview Gary Kelman, an NAAP fellow and retired chief of animal feeding operations division at the Maryland Department of the Environment about the history of NAEP, his work with farmers in Maryland, and then we geek out a little bit about our love of maps. Um, and finally, humans need saliva to be able to taste food. Human chemoreceptors responsible for tasting your favorite foods are called gustatory receptor cells, which is just a terrible name. They need to fix it because it sounds awful. But there's about 50 in just one taste bud, right? And those are what are contained in the the papier, which are the bumps on your tongue, right? And so each of those cells has a gustatory hair, even grosser. Um, <laughs> and when they make contact with the exterior through taste pores, molecules mixed with saliva enter the taste pores and the sensation of taste is then created. And again, now that I've said it out loud, I'm pretty <laughs> sure I just crossed out everybody. So <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's science for you. You know, sometimes it's not pretty, but it is cool. I thought that was pretty neat. So. Um... I hope nobody's hungry right now. <laughs> they, if they were, they're not now. So <laughs> apologies for everyone listening. <laughs> As always, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Hit that music. Our shout out for today is for the Environmental Management Stewardship, Conservation and or Protection Award, which goes to the North Carolina Department of Transportation Corridor K Improvements for their innovative land bridge mitigation to preserve habitat connectivity within the Nantahala National Forest, which I love. So awesome. Also want to give a quick shout out to our one of our volunteers, Kara Lubbold. She's been helping us behind the scenes here and in the studio. And I just wanted to bring it up not only to thank her for her help, but also if you hear another person chime in <laughs> in any of our conversations, that's who's talking. We mentioned previously the Environmental Professionals Connection, which is NAEP's environmental hub for articles, research studies, and leadership blogs from hundreds of leading sources. Hopefully, we'll also feature EPR there soon. But we learned recently that it also has an algorithm that will allow you to cater the articles to ones you like to read. So if you get in there and don't see what you like quite yet, go in there and um, start liking and setting your preferences and then it will act more like social media for your science preferences so check it out at environmentalprofessionalsconnection.com and then if you would like to sponsor a future episode of epr head over to environmental professional environmental professionals radio.com <laughs> i gotta breathe before i change that's what i was to say <laughs> <laughs> and check out the sponsor form there for more details <laughs> You also did the Environmental Professionals Connection? Like it was a question mark. Like that it was, was funny. a question. Dot, dot <laughs> well, com? Yeah. You were like dot com? That's what you said. Is it dot, dot com? com? <laughs> it is dot com. Yeah. I had turned like a German Shepherd too. Yeah. Now let's get to our segment. Oh, and you mentioned farm agricultural best practices that you wanted to put with Gary's episode. I don't know what you mean by that. Are you in, as in any type of industrial or manufacturing or and there's a million ways to approach something, right? Like, so yeah. growing carrots or onions, there's different ways that you can farm. And and speaking of like water resource issues, no different than like people watering their lawn. People who don't know will right. water their lawn in the middle of the day when it's hot and most of it's going to evaporate anyway. And essentially just kind of wasting the water when you're better off doing it in the evening. And 
Mm-hmm. So for farming, there are lots of best practices and things that they can actually put into place that not only helps them be more effective, but helps them save money. So, you know, you'll see different farms running different types of watering mechanisms for their crops. And, you know, some crops require different things than others, but instead of using the big machines that are like basically giant sprinklers, you can put in machines that run tubes and they basically run this like mist on the plants instead, which is much more effective. But of course it depends on the crop. I don't know enough about it to talk about specific crop watering (laughs) practices, but um, in general, probably any way that you are watering your crops, there's more efficient, effective ways to do it. But there's also, you know, putting buffer zones between where your animals or plants are and any water systems, natural waterways that might be flowing through the property, putting in wetlands, like there's different things that farmers can do to reduce the impacts that they might potentially be having on local waterways. And so, so at least in Hillsborough County, there is an organization or department whose job it is to work with farmers to help them come up with these best practices and then also give them grants and money to implement them. Because one of the reasons why farmers don't do these things are because it's going to cost them money. It might cost them, mm-hmm. it might save them money in the long term, but to come up with the money, especially now when farmers are losing a lot of their revenues, it's hard to you've got to incentivize them, you know, to, to spend the money to put these new, because many of them probably want to do quote unquote, the right thing, but Mm -hmm. having the resources available to do it. So if there's any other city states organizations out there who are looking for a way to work with their farming, there's definitely this group in, in Tampa and Hillsborough, who I think is a really great role model for that in having this grant fund available to help farmers implement this type of project. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, that's one of those things where like then the the excuse of, you know, it costs money goes away. And excuse is the wrong word, but you know, that basically meets the challenge. And right. uh yeah, that's really cool. I like those kinds of things. That's is that ongoing now or is that I believe it is. If anybody's interested, they can let us know and I can I can actually or we can put in the description or whatever like the actual yeah. organization because that's just escaping my mind right now, but Right. I'm pretty sure that they are still, and I think they have also documentation and things on what they offer and what they're suggesting to farmers. Okay. You know, it's kind of part of the grants were the pollution recovery funds from the Environmental Protection Commission. Mm -hmm. And so basically the Ag Association would apply for those grants and then they would administer the grants to the farming program. I'm pretty sure all of that has to be public reports. There's probably there's case studies and all kinds of things that would be available from that. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I think um, American Farmland Trust has some programs too that uh, that they connect farmers with like uh, grants and and subsidies and things like that to help with like water quality or things they can do for like reduce their climate you know impacts and things along those lines. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean it makes a lot of sense. In there saying that, I was kind of thinking like as I was speaking it, I was like there must be another organization that does this. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think you're right, Laura. There is like one for each state that specifically deals with the states. Like I know around here in Pennsylvania and Maryland, they have pro- they have issues with the cattle and the the cows going into the streams, the local streams, yeah, mm-hmm. which creates you know all kinds of issues. So they are trying to get the farmers to create buffers and fencing to keep the cattle and the cows out of the local streams and to keep maintain water quality. Yeah, because they can, they erode the, erode the shorelines and also create turbidity issues. Yep. Not to mention the fecal problem. The fecal coliform, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, I learned something new today. Uh, <laughs> Yay. I knew something <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> you know plenty that I don't. It's no worries. Yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> that's funny. All right. Let's get to our interview. Sounds good. Welcome back to EPR. We are super happy to have Gary Kelman with us today. Gary is an MS, M-A-S-C-E, C-E-P, lots of letters, <laughs> and currently working with Mayrep, more letters, Mid-Atlantic NAAP chapter. And Gary was the technical chair at the Baltimore Conference, which is where he and I got to meet. Mm-hmm. So happy to see you again, Gary. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So the first thing that I wanted to ask you or talk about was, you know, I was reading over the history that you sent us and I noticed that you said you had joined NAEP from a brochure that you read in 1997, which is the year I was born. So, uh, 1977, so, 1977. Uh, what's it been like to be part of NAEP over the years? It's really changed. I mean, it used to be very serious but friendly. You know, you would go to meetings and we were all friends. We'd go out drinking afterwards and it was uh, really wonderful. But there were battles, especially over local chapters versus the national. Most organizations, you have to join the national before you join the local chapter. And there were literally fist fights in the parking lot because people disagreed on whether you know you could be a local only member wow literal fist fights. that question that's interesting <laughs> well not only not, not only fist fights but at one point one guy tried to run over somebody else no. in the parking oh. lot oh my god <laughs> it's different that is different <laughs> it's a little wow. different now we're a little more politically correct nowadays <laughs> yeah so that did that happen pre-drinks or after drinks no, this was right after the board meeting. <laughs> okay, so yeah. Wow. That's I thought wild. our board meetings were bad now. No, actually, they've been, <laughs> they've been very good. Um, wow, that's so interesting. But back then, was there, like, how did, you know, communications is different? You know, we are able to obviously meet virtually for NAP. How did the national group kind of function when it first started? I mean, we would have quarterly meetings. Of course, now it's COVID, but we would have quarterly meetings. You know, they wanted you to go to the board meeting. So people had to travel. You know, we had airplanes back then. So uh, interesting. So uh, people would fly in, meet at the airport, go to the meeting place. And it was all over the country. It was a wonderful uh, place, you know, way to travel around the country. I loved it. And the people were great. And they were like important people, like, you know, somebody way up in the Federal Aviation Administration and CEQ, you know, was involved back then. Also, as a matter of fact, the consulting firm that I initially worked at after graduate school, Mm -hmm. uh, this guy, Robert Harris, who was the horse grismill of the 70s, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. when CEQ, I think was like the, the NEPA part of it was just formed was uh, a good friend of head of my consulting firm. So he would come over all the time. And that's how I learned about CEQ. I mean, I was a young whippersnapper back then. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a very good experience. And I first started getting involved with the local chapter and then went on to the national board. They say, hey, 
why don't you run for the national board? And I said, me, I'm a nobody. I'm you know, <laughs> the president and all that right. and, and the national board. And I ran and I got on the board and it was wonderful. Awesome. And they had a lot of their meetings down at the old EPA headquarters at Waterside Mall, which was destroyed. Oh. You know, they, they knocked it down and now, yeah. of course, they're at the federal center. So, but it was, yeah, it was uh, different. So let's take it back just a little bit. How did you get started in environmental work to begin with? Well, it was by accident. I wanted to be a medical doctor. My family was medical doctors. I wanted to be a medical doctor. But it was during the Vietnam War when everybody uh, was applying, wanted to get out of the draft and when they were Mm -hmm. applying to medical schools. So I applied to medical schools. The big mistake I made was I only applied to medical schools in the Philadelphia area, which is where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And like five medical schools and the five medical schools rejected me. And I went and I met with the director of admissions. He said, look, go get a master's degree in a highly scientific, rigorous curriculum. Do really well. Resubmit your application and we'll let you in. Well, mm-hmm. you know, I all my life I wanted to be a doctor. So I had no idea what what to do. But I had this great course in, I think, college called Biological Interrelationships, an ecology course. And you can imagine this was way back when, like Earth Day had just occurred in 1970 and all this. So I said, well, maybe maybe I'll do something in environmental. Well, my cousins matched me up with somebody down at the University of Maryland in College Park, uh, Maryland. I had a date with her. And I said, well, this is a great, great, great place. And uh, I got the graduate school catalog and I opened it up and there was a uh, course called, what was it? Human Ecology. And I said, great, how humans relate to the environment. Yeah. So I went to the, uh, that part of the college and it turns out that's what they called their nutrition course. human ecology so i said oh no so i said bleep and uh, i dropped the catalog (laughs) on the floor i picked up the catalog it was open to the department of civil engineering and i said civil engineer i never really thought about engineering i didn't have undergraduate in engineering i graduated in life sciences which was a lot of physics and chemistry and biology and all all that And so I went and I met with the uh, head of the department and he said, look, you just have to take fluid mechanic course this summer and we'll admit you to the graduate program and you could get a master's degree in civil engineering and uh, specializing in environmental engineering. Oh, wow. And the rest is history. Nice. Oh, that's cool. I like when the universe speaks to us. But it was all by mistake. And I (laughs) I loved it ever since. I've, it's very, seriously, it's been very rewarding ever since. That's awesome. So tell us about some of the work that you've done. I know you've done a lot in water and wastewater industry. Like what kind of things were your favorite things to do and what kind of work do you do? Did you do? Well, <laughs> I did, uh, I was trying to sing or something. Um, I, yeah, I, I often, I often I, do that on the show just for she no does, reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Going for the easy way out. After graduate school, one of my graduate professors offered me a job to go work for his uh, consulting firm. 
So I said, that's great. And it was a small consulting firm in Bethesda, Maryland. And I went there. And, you know, small consulting firms, you have to do everything. He had a water quality lab, and I operated the GC mass specs and the spectrophotometers and all that kind of stuff. I went out and uh, collected samples. I did a, a paper on where do odors come from composting? Uh And they were just starting a thing where they were composting a raw human sewage. (laughs) And I had to climb on the top of these uh, big uh, mountains of human sewage compost and dig down and stick my hand down in them and get get samples and analyze them for what uh, organic compounds were coming off them. So, I mean, it was a great experience working for a small consulting firm because you got to do everything. Then everything. I, you know, I got tired <laughs> of it. A great yeah. experience. But, but, oh, oof. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, I know most of NAEP people are consultants, mm-hmm. but I didn't like certain things about the consulting business. So I was looking for another opportunity and I got an opportunity with the state of Maryland. They were consolidating their environmental regulatory departments. Yeah. Uh, prior to that, it was scattered throughout the uh, department. But then they decided to make you know one department all regulatory. So yeah. I joined that, and uh, the first place I joined was writing uh, municipal NPDES permits. Then I yeah. went on to industrial NPDES permits. Then I got one of my favorite programs, a pretreatment program, where we tried to make local governments into regulators, like environmental regulators. Mm-hmm. So my staff and I would go around the state of Maryland and teach local governments how to develop sewer use ordinances and developing permitting programs. And so I got a chance to, you know, go and see how a lot of these local industries worked because you had to take the toxic stuff out of them because they don't want toxics Uh going in and ruining the wastewater treatment because most of the wastewater treatment is a biological process. So, uh, you know, heavy metals and things like that would kill off the bacteria and they don't want that. So we would want local industries to treat and remove these toxic compounds before they went down into the sanitary sewer. So that was my favorite program. I did that for like 15 years. And then I had an opportunity in uh, the Office of the Secretary, which was like the top level of the department, to head to be a director of this uh, Office of Special Programs. And we ran the pollution prevention program. We oversaw all of the enforcement in the whole department and developed a uh, legislatively required enforcement report, which was sent to the Maryland legislature every year. And that was nice, too. That was... But then in four years, the head of the department decided to do away with that whole office. Said, Hmm. Gary, what do you want to do? You know, go around to the different directors of the air and water and waste. And, you know, they all like you and see what interesting things they have. And so I went around and I kind of was making my decision. And they said, look, we don't have anybody who wants to do this concentrated animal feeding operation program right and me the only (laughs) the closest i've been to farm animals in my entire life was a petting zoo 
<laughs> so uh, I said, well, you know, I'm from Philadelphia. Yeah. I'm a city guy. Well, you know, but they said, look, we want you to do this. And then I went and I met with a guy, the director of that administration. Mm-hmm. And he said, you'll be the most hated man in Maryland. Because <laughs> farmers don't don't like to be farmers don't like to be uh-huh. regulated. Of course. Of and course. also the, all the environmental groups hate farmers. So, uh, you know, you get it from both sides, but uh, that was in uh, 2009, and I loved it. I loved working with the United States Department of Agriculture, with EPA, with the farmers, with the uh, banks that lend farmers money. I had a wonderful staff. And that's where I ended my uh, career in 2019. That's awesome. I just was talking to students this morning and telling them that most environmental professionals are not doing what they thought they would do when they first started. And you're just a living example of that. (laughs) And sometimes it doesn't sound very pretty on paper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I remember going out to one farm and they were showing how useful manure was, you know, and this pile of manure would substitute for this pile of chemical fertilizer and manure is free chemical fertilizer costs money so we brought our uh, attorney we brought our attorney on on the trip so all the (laughs) farmers and you know my staff are like crowded around this pile of manure which is somewhat (laughs) fragrant and uh, (laughs) My lawyer was way in the back, and they said, oh, uh, who's that? Isn't she with you? And I, they said, oh, I bet you she's your lawyer. I said, yeah, she's our lawyer, yeah. So, uh, But I, and, and I really like the CAFO program. Yeah, and taking a step back a little bit, like um, that's really, you talk about working with local governments when you were at the Maryland Department of the Environment. That seems really, really innovative. Something that's I haven't heard a whole lot of is just going out there and doing that. What was the impetus behind that program? Well, it's a national program. Again, it was to, you know, there were a lot of industries. You know, most industries discharge into sanitary sewers. Mm -hmm. They don't discharge into rivers. Or if they do discharge into rivers, it's just like cooling water or something like that. They don't discharge their toxics into rivers. They discharge them into the sanitary sewers where when we flush our toilet, that's where the stuff goes. And uh, wastewater treatment plants are designed to mimic rivers because rivers have a biological process. And way yeah. back when, when there weren't, wasn't such a large population, the stuff would go into the river and that would be fine. But now we created these cities and the cities have concentrate, put all their waste into these pipes and the pipes go out to rivers and oh, what happens? The rivers, you have algal blooms because of all the nutrients that go in there. So they decided to mimic rivers in wastewater treatment plants. But then all these industries connected to the sanitary sewers and were wiping out the bacteria that were used to treat the sewage. Yeah. So they had to figure out some way to treat the pre-treat the wastewater coming from these industries to remove the toxics before it went into the sanitary sewer to save the wastewater treatment plant from being knocked out. And that's what the program was all about. Basically teach, you know, most local governments, they want 
industries there. It's a tax base. It adds to their revenues. It employs their people. But Mm -hmm. they produce – so they want to be nice to the industries Mm -hmm. and not – but the industries were discharging these terrible things, and their wastewater treatment plants would be knocked out. Yeah. Periodically. And what how'd that happen? Well, it's a toxic from Thomas's English muffin plant or something, <laughs> right. something, right, right. something like that. Yeah, that's really wild. And, you know, like the and Maryland has a really good stormwater program. And I think that's really kind of come up like right around 2007. They had the Stormwater Management Act, a few other things going on. Was there other legislation or guidance that influenced like what you did in your career that you could maybe speak to? I mean, you know, generally the programs that I worked on were delegated programs, basically the the NPDES program, National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System program. It was delegated from EPA. So EPA would set up, you know, guidance and background materials. So you more or less followed what EPA wanted you to do. But in Maryland, and in fact, a lot of the uh, industries and municipalities didn't like to say, why does Maryland always have to be first? You know, we're <laughs> innovative, yeah, you know, and, and getting down on us. So it was a challenge in uh, both directions. Great. So you've worked in government and private. You worked at MDE for a long time. Like, do you have a preference of working in the government, outside the government? Well, I love the government. Yeah, I'm not a big risk taker. And to work okay. for government, you know, you have to be really bad for them to fire you and which is which is a problem when you when you get an employee who's really bad you know you get a pension after a certain number of years so now i'm collecting a pension from there and it's a nice pension they have 401ks they have all the stuff the private industry plus you work you know eight hours a day Mm -hmm. and you go home it's very rare unless you like me you get into management that you really have to, you know, worry about what's going on mm-hmm. because then you could go home, play with your family. Your family recognizes you. Consultants, <laughs> on the other hand, you know, talking to them. Now I'm at meetings with them. They're always working on projects during the meetings and they're multitasking. And, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to do that. I wanted a life. I wanted a family. And, you know, this seemed to be the, the best way to go. I didn't want to take a lot of risk. You know, I wanted to be able to go to work every day and have a job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. that's There's why special, uh, um, I preferred I preferred government, but I always wanted to work for EPA. I always wanted to work for EPA. That was my next question. That if there were my, special things yeah. about working for the state or what's the difference between working for state or, or federal? Well, the federal government, they're the ones that kind of start the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's a federal government. It's like dragging an elephant. You know, if you want to change anything, you really can't. You know, it doesn't happen for years. State yeah. government is a little more flexible and local governments are even more flexible. But I, you know, state government, I thought you, you could do more. You could do more with uh, programs. You're a little more flexible. Whereas EPA is really, this is the way it goes. You have to do step one before you do step two. You have to do step two before you do step three. Yeah. Whereas states could be more innovative. And my mind is very innovative. I, I, I really, you know, think out of the box. And I take, even though I don't take risks with a job, I take risks 
with coming up with different ways to do things on the job, where with uh, federal government, you need your supervisor's approval, then you need the you know, senator's approval, then you need the president's approval. You know, it's crazy. So I thought the state was a good medium. Yeah, that's, awesome. Yeah, it really is. And yeah, you say, I hate to even move on, but for, sake of, for the sake of time, one thing we want to talk about as uh, field notes, you know, we talk about people's funniest work stories. And you mentioned the water quality lab that you worked with in Bethesda. You mentioned that you worked with with waste, but you also had a an unfortunate incident with the trash in that facility. So what happened there with that? What was that story? Oh, like, like I said, they had a water quality lab there and they had a GC mass spec and other equipment that had to be calibrated. Well, one of the things that you calibrated it with, they have these little glass ampules mm-hmm. and they, the particular one that we were using had a butyric acid in it. And now butyric acid kind of smells like uh, rancid butter. And uh, <laughs> so, and it, it's odor has a very like low odor threshold, you know, very little bit goes a long way. So uh, we were calibrating a piece of equipment. We got done calibrating it. We threw the ampule in the trash. The trash was Mm -hmm. taken way 16 stories down to this dumpster. And then later on in the day, I left work and there were police and fire trucks and all that. (laughs) And you went outside and the whole, Bethesda, Maryland, smelt like a, a swamp. <laughs> no, it smelled like rancid. It was horrible. Oh, no. So oh, no. I looked the other way and I went home. I didn't take credit for it. <laughs> oh, my oh, God. You want to try another fun trick on your colleagues? Leave a bunch of bananas in the car in the Florida heat and, and see oh, what that does to yeah. the the atmosphere inside the car for the next year. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. Oh, man. (laughs) We were talking earlier and you mentioned that you it sounded like you did a bunch of reading or that you like to read. So do you have some favorite books? Well, right now I'm really into this this series called Sapiens. I mean, it's uh, by this Israeli author. They have Sapiens. And then his follow up is Homo Do. And basically he talks about how Homo sapiens developed and why did Homo sapiens win out over Neanderthals and yeah. things like that. I mean, oh, it's yeah, fascinating. Yeah. He oh, talks absolutely. about about how everything developed and about migratory patterns. And it's a great book. And now they have different, ver- they have a graphic version of it. And they, it, oh, it's wow. great. It's great. If you ever get to read it, Sapiens. Yeah, that's cool. It's wonderful. Yeah. But I read a lot of books. I'm really interested in Washington, D.C. and the mm-hmm. history behind Washington, D.C. and how it developed. And so I read a lot of books on the history of uh, Washington. Oh, that's also. interesting. Yeah. So what's the takeaway from the what, little nugget from Sapiens, maybe, for the audience? Like one thing it talks about oh. that's really interesting. Okay. Animals. Okay. When you're developing mm-hmm. with animals. If they have a a task to do, they do the task, then basically they forget about it. You know, they can only, and to do a task, you know, maybe they could get 10, you know, uh, Neanderthals together to do a task because they're so focused on this one task where Homo sapiens, they were able to get thousands of people together Um, to do the task. 
And that's why Homo sapiens won out over Neanderthals, because they were less like, like scattered. They could kind of focus on uh, a task. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've heard that book mentioned a couple of times recently, so I'll have to pick it up. It's been on the bestseller list for ages, yeah. Sapiens. Cool. Well, speaking of other interests, I'm also a photographer, so I didn't know we had that in common. And I also didn't know NAP at one time had an official photographer. Yeah. So what did you do with that role when you were I, 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 photographer? They actually gave me a plaque for being the uh, official wow. photographer. Uh, yeah, I remember you know, that. I just yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I was a photographer and I had, you know, a photographer. One of my hobbies was, you know, taking pictures. So I would bring my picture to every NAP board meeting and every conference and all that. And I said, mm-hmm. oh, Gary, here. And this was before phones. This was before, yeah. you know, we had, ca- everybody had a camera. So <laughs> right. I was like, oh, Gary, can you take pictures of the board? Gary, can you take pictures of this? Can you take pictures right. of that? So it just got to be a traditional thing. Every year, it would be me who took the pictures. And I have some great pictures of NAP over the years. Yeah, but unfortunately, yeah. most of them are like actual photographs. They're not digitized. <laughs> yeah. So I have I have boxes and boxes and boxes of pictures from NAP meetings, like from the early 80s on. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, that'd be great to digitize some of those and turn it into a slideshow for future. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Is, is NAP at 50 years yet, or when does that happen? Well, NAP, I believe, started in 75. So uh, do the math. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so maybe, years, maybe yeah. a slideshow in a couple of years at the conference. Yeah, yeah that's, that's an idea. Well, yeah, right. once we actually all get together, I suppose yeah. oh in a virtual. By uh, then. <laughs> I suppose in a virtual meeting, you could have a slideshow too. But yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, it's not the same. You know, they we, we, we want to laugh together. You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly for sure. for sure. Exactly. And you also have this. So I love vintage maps. I think the historic maps are really, really cool. And you're also an avid map collector. So what sparked your interest in maps? And do you collect maps on? based on where you travel, or you just look for something that looks interesting? Well, my wife and I have been married for this year, I think it'll be 39 years. And uh, our first anniversary, first anniversary is paper, paper anniversary. So mm-hmm. we were living in uh, downtown Baltimore uh, at the time, and there were antique shops down the street. So yeah. my wife picked a map of old map from like the 1850s of uh, Baltimore yeah. and framed it and brought it over to me. And so ever since then, like at least once a year, I would buy a new map, started off with maps of different parts of Baltimore. <laughs> then yeah. it would be if uh, NAEP would have a meeting in New Orleans, I get a map, old map of Louisiana. Yeah. And if we travel over to uh, Italy, I would get an old map of Italy. My oldest map is uh, part of uh, Italy. It's from the 1500s. Wow. But I uh, collect map, a lot of maps of Maryland, the Ches- old things of the Chesapeake Bay, and pictures of uh, North America and the world, which kind of show like the Western United States is unknown territory. And, <laughs> you know, maps, yeah, you yeah. can stare... And my wife ran a museum, and the head of the museum basically said, things that are made out of metal, they'll last forever. But Mm -hmm. things that are made out of paper, they become more and more valuable over the years Mm -hmm. because if they're not treated properly, they disintegrate. Yeah. So I would just collect maps. Now we have maybe 50, 60 maps 
and we don't have any more wall space to uh, <laughs> I noticed uh, Nick you have a, you, yeah, you have a map yeah. in the background there right exactly but yeah. but yeah so they're wonderful you could stare at maps for hours and totally. uh, new stuff happens you know yeah, I totally agree. But yeah, they're from all my, all my maps are from all over the place. In fact, my wife is saying, you know, how do we get rid of some of these maps? So we joined uh, this uh, this a uh, Washington uh, Map Society, yeah. which has uh, weekly lectures at the Library of Congress, and it's uh, people that are like a lot more serious than uh, I am about the. Uh, collecting maps i mean some of these maps they go for fifty thousand dollars forty thousand dollars you know my maps are in like the hundreds you know but but uh you know some of these maps that they try to sell they're you know fourteen thousand five hundred dollars you know based on the rarity they're not necessarily that old but they based Mm -hmm. it on how rare it is but maps are great collecting old maps are great very cool where do you find them well, originally there was a place on the eastern shore of Maryland called Unicorn Books, mm-hmm. and you, know, you would go in and they would have all these musty-smelling uh, <laughs> uh, books that people had traded in. But they also had, you know, first editions and all that. But upstairs they would have a map room, and I would have a lot of clients on the uh, eastern shore of Maryland and. Every time I'd swing by there, I would uh, go in there to this map room and I'd you know, buy a map. Yeah, my wife ready to divorce me, but uh, you know, every time, every, yeah, every time I went over there, I would come home with a map, and I thought they were great. The problem is framing them was yeah. a, yes. a lot of times more expensive <laughs> than the actual map. But they're they're Here's my they're great. Hundred dollar map with a three hundred dollar frame, isn't it nice? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Gary, exactly. what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. I'm giving him flashbacks now. Yep. Right. That's yeah, right. That's great. Does your wife still work in a museum? No, my well, she's in hospitality for twenty years. She worked for the state of Maryland in their uh, department of business development, trying to encourage businesses and people to come to Maryland. And uh, then she had an opportunity to start a pop culture museum in downtown Baltimore, right near uh, Oriole Park. And it was great. This uh, rich guy had this collection that he wanted to uh, show in public. So, but yeah, she's in tourism. And I think she was just retired, Mm -hmm. you know, because hospitality is not doing too well in uh, COVID. And she was ready to retire in a year or two anyway. So, uh, that worked out. Oh, well, so now we're with each other all the time. It's great. <laughs> right sure. answer, Gary. That's the yes, right answer. Yes, it is. Yes, we are recording this. So <laughs> speaking of which, maybe I now I know why you've been volunteering so much. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the volunteer work that you do? Well, uh, my mother-in-law was a volunteer for years at the Hirshhorn Museum in uh, oh, Washington. Yeah. Yeah. And like for 40 years, she knew Mr. Hirshhorn. She, uh, all wow. this, so I knew you could, so I knew there was an opportunity to volunteer at museums and they had always tried to get me interested in art. And I'm not really that interested in art, but I'm mm-hmm. interested in uh, history and news. So across the street from the National Gallery of Art, there was this museum called the Newseum. Yeah. And it was basically a First Amendment, journalism things like that. So I volunteered there for 12 years until it uh, shut down the end of 2019. Johns Hopkins uh, School of International Studies took over the building, and now they're changing this neat building into a, a classroom. 
building is right on Pennsylvania Avenue. All of the demonstrations in Washington would occur like right in front of oh, this yeah. museum. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. thousands of people is a couple blocks from the Capitol building. So I volunteered there as a tour guide there. And then when I heard they were uh, shutting down, I volunteered at the uh, Capitol Visitor Center, which I uh, you know took people around and you know showed them in the Capitol building. Of course, with uh, COVID, that kind of you know stopped. So then I looked yeah. for an outdoor place to volunteer, and they had just opened this uh, Eisenhower Memorial. It's right near the Air and Space Museum, a couple blocks from the Capitol. So I volunteer there because it's outdoors. I won't get COVID. And I mean, it's kind of interesting. And you meet all, you know, volunteering in Washington, you meet all these really, you know, their real lives or non-volunteer life is they're the publisher of USA Today. They're the publisher of the Detroit Free Press. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're the longest serving Vietnam veteran. They're fascinating people. And what I wanted to say was it's very important for environmental professionals to do stuff on the outside. Mm-hmm. And it's also very important for them to participate in the profession. And that's why NAEP is so important, because it allows them to, you know, if you're a chemist, you always look at stuff in one way, chemistry, chemistry, chemistry. You come to NAP, you have chemists and biology and, and lawyers and, mm-hmm. and the doctors and all this, and you get a better view on all of your projects, and you yeah. always come out of NAP meetings, you feel like you've learned something because you get all of these different views. You're not hanging around people like you all the time. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> That's a really good point, for sure. Yeah. And speaking with of, and we're sort of running out of time, but if I know you're doing a lot of stuff with Mayrep and I see a lot of things from Mayrep because I'm, I'm on your list and I see your events and stuff that are going on. Um, any last things you want to share with us or things that are happening with Mayrep? Well, Mayrep is the latest incarnation of the Maryland chapter. Maryland, Illinois, and the Michigan chapter were the first three chapters of NAEP. And I first got involved with NAP, you know, from the local chapter's standpoint, a Maryland chapter. Then when the Maryland chapter went downhill, I made it the Chesapeake chapter, and we took in Virginia and Delaware and D.C. And then once I left, I was a spark plug. All of these chapters, you need a spark plug. If you for don't sure. have a spark plug, it's very difficult for the chapters to continue. And so now MAREP is the latest incarnation of that. And I just want it to be uh, great. The area is right in Washington. And uh, we have all of this stuff going on in Washington, all this politics going on. And it's, I mean, it's it's a wonderful opportunity to uh, get uh, elected officials involved with NAEP. Because NAP, Chris Van Hollins, one of the state of Maryland's uh, senators, once did a president. He was the keynote speaker at one of our conferences when I was president of NAP, and I was able to make him an honorary member of NAP. So the Mid-Atlantic chapter, it's a wonderful location for a chapter, and I'm glad to be involved with NAP again. I, I took a few-year hiatus 
but it's a great opportunity to meet with young people, you know, because you always want to hang around young when you're old. You always want to hang yeah. around young, young people because yeah. it, it keeps you young. For sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here today and sharing all your history and with NAP especially. And I just I was happy to see you again and catch up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe we'll see each other again in person. Yes, yeah, gosh. Soon. fingers crossed. It's we're getting closer. So can't wait. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Gary. And that's our show. I want to thank Gary for coming on with us today. It was really fun having him on. A lot of great, wonderful stories. So thank you. Thank you. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. And we'll catch you each and every Friday. See you, everybody. Bye.